All right, and before we get started, first I need a drink. Hope everybody's doing great. And I just wanted to give everybody a reminder. Listen all the way through the podcast today, and especially if you're interested in getting with us on the trip to Springfield for the tour of Mother's Brewing and the Springfield Cardinals game on Sunday, May 21st. Also, if you listened to last week's podcast, I want to apologize for the last 20 minutes of the uh, show, which after I listened to it, I realized how much my meds were interacting with alcohol. And uh, <laughs> Oh well, on with today's show. Back in 1981, I'd gone off to Texas. I'd been bumming around Hannibal for the better part of two years after graduating from high school. I was working construction and also as a deckhand on the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. Nothing had really took hold, and then the opportunity to move to Lubbock came along. A family member had relocated there, and so I thought I'd go off to see what might be waiting for me south of the Red River in Baja, Oklahoma. And what I discovered was a hell of a lot of fun. I had a good time in Lubbock. Of course, I was, what, 81? I was just 19 years old. What I did was, well, I played a lot of baseball. I worked for a small pizza place as well in the prep kitchen in the morning, making dough and sauce and cutting cutting up pepperoni and stuff like that. And I delivered pies at night when I wasn't out on the diamond. The guy who owned the pizza joint, Mark Sorrell, he also owned a supper club where they played light jazz, and he kind of took me under his wing, and in the winter, when I wasn't playing ball, he had me waiting tables at the club, which is where I learned how to open a bottle of wine correctly at the table side, and how to memorize the nightly dinner specials. When I wasn't playing baseball or pushing pizzas or waiting tables to the sounds of acoustic jazz, I was out at night drinking. Now, the drinking age in Tejas at the time was 18, and the guys I played ball with introduced me to Cold Water Country, one of those great Texas-style roadhouses. Basically, it was three bars inside a warehouse, had a mechanical bull off in the corner, a huge dance floor in the middle of the place, a stage on one end, with live music every night. Country music, Texas swing, southern rock, There was a great local band there that was very popular called the Mains Brothers. And they often played uh, over the weekends when they didn't have bigger acts. And they had a great song, Amarillo Highway. It went, uh, I'm a high straight in plain view, side bed in Idaloo, and a fresh deck in New Deal. Yes, some call me a high hand, some call me a low hand, but I'm holding what I am, the wheel. Cause I'm a panhandling, manhandling, post holing, high rolling, dust bowling daddy. And I ain't got no blood veins, I just got them four lanes of hard Amarillo Highway. And I don't wear no Stetson, but I'm willing to bet, son, that I'm a big a Texan as you are. When there's a girl in her bare feet, she's asleep on the back seat, and that trunk's full of pearl and Lone Star. <laughs> you probably don't know who the Mains Brothers are, 
but you know one of their kids, Natalie, Natalie Maines. She was the daughter of the lead singer of the Maines Brothers, and she is also the lead singer, or was, of the Dixie Chicks. I also saw Sleep at the Wheel play at Coldwater Country, along with Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks and a lot of other great bands that came through West Texas. Now, Monday nights at Coldwater Country were crash and burn nights, where a six-pack of Lone Star cans and six shots of tequila, who cares what kind it was, was only $10. This was a great fucking bar. At least it was if you were a single guy and you wanted to meet single ladies in Lubbock, Texas in 1981. What you did is you went and did some two-stepping at the Coldwater Country. Anyway, I did meet a young lady there, a Texas Tech student named Sarah at Coldwater, and she and I started dating for a while. It didn't last very long. Now, any of you know know me from Saverton and Hannibal, you know that I used to be a shit-kicking, Copenhagen-dipping country boy. We had horses at the home place, Tennessee Walkers and Missouri Foxtrotters, so I began wearing Tony Llamas and Justin Cowboy boots when I was in high school, and I bought my first Stetson hat with my first paycheck that I ever received from my construction job earnings after graduation. And those of you who didn't know me from that time are like, what? <laughs> yeah, I was a country boy from Rawls County, Missouri, and there I was in the middle of one of Texas's fastest growing metropolitan areas of the era. So, when I was in Lubbock, it was right in the middle of the urban cowboy craze, and when we'd go to Coldwater Country, there'd be all these preppies these city kids from Houston and Dallas and Lubbock, too, and wherever they were from. And they'd be wearing knit Izod polo shirts with their sharply pressed Levi's and Lee jeans and these huge silver belt buckles, and they'd be sporting snakeskin and ostrich hide cowboy boots and wearing 5X beaver felt Stetsons. And the closest most of them had ever been to horse shit was maybe when they were watching a parade. It was laughable. It really was. So anyway, one crash and burn night, there were these three local guys who didn't like the fact that one of their Texas girls was dating this Yankee, which was me. And they kept giving me grief, calling me a Yankee and asking Sarah why she was dating a Yankee. And finally, I said to one of them, so in your opinion, why am I a Yankee? And he answers, well... You're from a state that didn't fight for the Confederacy in the Civil War. To which I answered, Yeah, that's right, Missouri remained in the Union, but the fact is that a large number of Missourians supported the Confederacy. Missouri was still a slave state, and Missouri had more Confederate casualties per capita than any other state except Virginia. And then I continued, when I should have stopped, Besides that, if we're basing this argument about who is and who isn't a Yankee by geography during the Civil War, well then, you know that in 1864, Lubbock, Texas was nothing more than a place where Comanche Indians stopped to take a shit. I got my ass kicked in the parking lot when I walked outside. And it would have probably been much worse than it was had it not been for my friend George Castro and a couple of his amigos who stepped in and stopped the fight. George gave me his hand and he helped me up off of the pavement and he said, 
Hey, Tamlin, you can't be saying that kind of shit to these guys. Yeah, now you tell me. But I already knew that. I did. I just got tired of their shit. And anyway, George, who was actually Jorge, was the first real friend I had in Lubbock. We met working together at Pizza Express. George was born in the Mexican state of Chihuahua, and his family, including his mother and father, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, had come north to work in the cotton gins of the high Texas plains when George was just a baby. And they were invited to come work, as were a number of immigrant workers in those days. They were welcomed in. It was hard work, and they were willing to do it. And anybody that says anything about a lazy Mexican has probably never fucking known one. The Mexican migrant workers who I worked alongside of in the hayfields of Rawls County as a teenager were some of the hardest working men I have ever met in my life. And besides them, George was really the first Mexican that I ever knew. And I knew as a friend, of course. And I was invited into his home where his mother fixed some of the best food I've ever eaten, besides my own mother's cooking, of course. Homemade pork tamales. Oh, they were with Colorado sauce. I had never re had real Mexican food before that. You know, Taco John's and Hannibal was about as the extent of it, and that's not Mexican food. George's family also introduced me to a celebration at their home that I had never heard of before. We drank cervezas and a little bit of wine, a little bit of mezcal, and we ate some great food. And, and the name of it, most of it, I couldn't pronounce. And there was mariachi music, and it was a great time. It was a great family party, and I was privileged to be the gringo who had been invited into their home. I had never heard of the holiday before I moved to West Texas, or before 1982. That was when the Castro family invited me to be a part of their celebration of Cinco de Mayo. I'm Alan Tatman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. All right. In celebration of Cinco de Mayo week, I've got some tequila. I don't drink a lot of tequila, and this is sipping tequila. It's Saza cucumber chili. It's really good. Merrily introduced this to me last year when we took our RV trip out to uh, Wyoming and South Dakota. And so this is this is really good stuff. It's I used to drink a lot of tequila back when I was uh, living in Texas and when I went to college and I found out that if I drink too much of it I'm allergic to it. It uh, makes my knuckles break out. Anyway, so this Friday is Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, and here in the United States the holiday is little more than an excuse for fraternity themed parties. The wearing of cheaply made gaudy sombreros, drinking excessive amounts of beer and tequila, news anchors and celebrity talk show hosts dressing up in tacky costumes with bandito mustaches stuck to their upper lip. And if you're a kleptocrat, you can order a Taco Bell from your cafeteria. Anyway, 
I have on occasion called Cinco de Mayo Mexican St. Patrick's Day because like St. Patrick's Day, mo most people it's just an excuse to drink like an idiot. Whereas the two observances, St. Pat's and Cinco de Mayo, have a completely different meaning for the Irish American and Mexican American communities respectively. And like St. Patrick's Day in Ireland, Cinco de Mayo in Mexico, especially in the state of Puebla, is a more reflective holiday, celebrating national pride and achievement. Now, the truth be told, Cinco de Mayo is not widely celebrated in Mexico itself. It's really kind of a Mexican-American holiday, very much attuned to St. Pat's Day in Ireland. In America, if you ask most Americans, what is Cinco de Mayo? They'll probably say, well, it's Mexican Independence Day. Nah, it's not. That would be September 16th, which commemorates Mexico's declaration of independence from the Spanish Empire in 1810. Spain didn't accept the declaration for another 11 years, August 24th of 1821, with the signing of the Treaty of Cordoba, but nobody celebrates that day either. Just like we celebrate our declaration of independence, on July 4th of 1776, nobody remembers the date of the signing of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American Revolution in 1783. For future reference, it was September 3rd. But outside of the state of Puebla in south, southern Mexico, very few places in Mexico carry on any kind of Cinco de Mayo celebrations, except for those places that cater to American tourists, who, like those who go to Dublin every year for St. Patrick's Day, they head to the border towns and the resorts of Mexico's for Cinco de Mayo, and the Mexican economy is very happy to have the U.S. dollars. But in America, Cinco de Mayo is a big party. Some recent statistical analysis have shown that more Americans drink at on-premise establishments, that is, bars and restaurants, on Cinco de Mayo than they do on St. Patrick's Day. Now, this probably has more to do with better weather in May than in the month of March. And it could also be a reflection of a growing Mexican immigrant presence in the United States. According to Pew Research, 11% of the United States population is of Mexican descent with Americans making up 64% of all Latinos in the country, or about 33 million people, give or take a million and a half here or there. And two and a half million of those are direct immigrants from Mexico itself. But the main reason that Cinco de Mayo is so big in the United States is marketing. Like Hallmark cards and Vermont teddy bears and every florist shop in the United States has been promoting the shit out of Valentine's Day for the last, what, 50 years? About 30 years ago, the marketers of adult beverages that had a connection to Mexico, including Jose Cuervo, Corona, and Dos Equis, they began to openly promote the celebration of Cinco de Mayo. Tequila is probably the one drink one that we most associate with Mexico and likewise with Cinco de Mayo. 
When the Spanish conquistadors invaded Latin America in the late 15th and early 16th century, they found the Aztec people of Mexico drinking a fermented beverage made from water and the sap of the agave plant they called pulque. When conquistadors ran out of their wine and brandy that they had brought with them to the New World, they then took the pulque and they used the art of distillation to make a new, a new beverage spirit known as mezcal. In 1595, King Philip II of Spain, he banned the growing of grapes and the establishment of vineyards in New Spain, that is, i.e. Central America, to protect the domestic wine industry back in Spain. And to, to import wine from Spain to Mexico at the time was extremely exp expensive and the importation of brandy even more so. So subsequently, at the time, the first Mexican distilleries popped up using pulque, and they were established near the location of a town that would become known as Tequila, duh, in the state of Jalisco in the late 15 and early 1600s. The first man to attach his name to the distillation of tequila was Pedro Sanchez de Tagle. This, I think that's how you say it. If I've said it wrong, I'm sorry. He's dead. He doesn't care. The second Marquis de Altamira, Altamira, making it actually the first distilled spirit in the New World before whiskey in the English colonies or rum in the Caribbean islands and Brazil. And while the Marquis de Altamira is considered the father of tequila, because of the mercantile export laws in the empire, he was never able to sell his product outside of the local area. And it was another hundred years before the most famous name in tequila made its mark. Don Jose Antonio de Cuervo was issued a land grant by the Spanish monarch King Ferdinand VI in 1758 in the province of Jalisco near the town of Tequila. On this land grant, Don Cuervo began to grow blue agave plants, which is used in the production of tequila. For years, Cuervo petitioned Ferdinand's successor, Carlos III, for a license to sell his tequila throughout the Spanish Empire, but he was rebuked by the royal court with every request. But then, in 1795... Jose Antonio de Cuervo's son, Jose Maria Guadalupe de Cuervo, was granted a license to manufacture and distribute vino mezcal de tequila de Jose Cuervo throughout the Spanish Empire by His Majesty Carlos IV, and thus began the worldwide distribution of what is today the most famous brand of tequila in the world. Cheers. I'm drinking salsa, though, not Jose. Mm. Chili cucumber. Ugh, I need a beer chaser with that. Now, I mentioned mezcal earlier, and that's what tequila is. But there, what's the difference between mezcal and tequila? Well, all right, get out your Venn diagrams. All tequila is technically mezcal. Which is, made, which is the distillate made from any of the agave plants, right? But 
For a mezcal to be called a tequila, it must be made in Jalisco or in small parts of adjoining provinces, and it must be made from the blue agave plant. It doesn't have to have a worm in it to be mezcal, which is what a lot of people think. That little caterpillar worm that uh, the Spanish, or the, excuse me, the Mexicans have been putting in their mezcal, well, that's a marketing gimmick and a joke that Mexico has been playing on us gringos for the last 30 years. If you eat the worm, you won't see visions because by that time you're probably going to pass out. After tequila, the next most associated beverage with Cinco de Mayo is cerveza, which is, of course, beer. Oh, I like beer. The history of brewing in Mexico is an interesting one, and guess who had the most to do with its development? Same as here in the United States, the Germans. Brewing of beer has been a part of Mexico since the arrival of the Spanish in Mesoamerica in 1519. Cortez's soldiers even attempted to brew beer using the grain they brought with them for bread from Spain. But of course, their supplies were limited. They didn't really make a whole lot, and they got in trouble for using up the bread stores to make uh, beer. So the Spanish conquistadors, they eventually got used to drinking the pulque, that is the beer that is made from the sap of the agave plant when fermented with water, and tejino. Tejino? I think that's how you say it. T-E-S-G-U-I-N-O, tejino. A beverage which is made from fermented corn water, which is like sour mash that uh, is not yet distilled into white dog, which is then aged in barrels to make bourbon. But that's, that's another story. So, in 1544, the first European-style brewery was licensed in the area of Mexico City. But by that time, the Spanish occupation had grown used to drinking these locally fermented beverages, and beer made from grain was much more expensive, so, like cider in New England... Beer was the secondary beverage because it was more expensive than the local brew. And the Mexican beer brewing industry struggled. Literally, it struggled for three centuries. But then, in the mid-19th century, German immigrants left Europe and settled in the New World, particularly in the United States, but some settled in Mexico, and they especially settled in the northern Mexican territory of... Tejas in the 1820s in the area around what would become Austin, Texas. And then the Republic of Texas in 1830s and 1840s saw more German immigrants come over from Europe. And not only that, German immigrants from other parts of the United States came into Texas, including many from Missouri. Now, with the defeat of Mexico and the annexation of the of Texas by the United States after the Mexican-American War, a few Catholic Germans in Texas moved to Mexico, and subsequently, the brewing of lager beer, guess what? It begins to emerge with a greater presence. During the 1860s, a period which I'm going to talk about in greater detail in a bit, German brewing took a real foothold in Mexico, and when Austrian Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian became Emperor of Mexico, and more on him later, 
He brought his own brewer to brew the distinctive style of Vienna dark lager known to Austria. Now, we have an Austrian black lager on tap at Patty Malone's, Herder Merkel. And as a Guinness drinker, I will tell you, it's, it's delicious. It's the dark beer for people who don't think they like dark beers. It's really refreshing. It's very tasty. And it's an Austrian-style black lager. And it's very similar to the dark Mexican lagers like Negro Modelo, Dos Equis Ambers, etc., etc. But the most famous of Mexican beers to us here in the United States is, of course, Corona Extra. Now, Corona is really historically late to the game in brewing in Mexico. The brand itself isn't yet even 100 years old. Cerveceria Toluca in Mexico was established in 1865 in Mexico City and produced a dark Vienna-style lager called Victoria, which is still produced today and is still quite popular in that country. The Toluca brewery was purchased by Grupo Modelo in 1925, and that year saw three brands of Mexican cervezas brought onto the market that are still with us today. Negro Modelo, Modelo Especial, and Corona Extra. Which Corona was marketed as Modelo's Pilsner-style lager. Now, a year after it was introduced, the clear bottle, that iconic clear bottle, was incorporated into Corona's packaging, creating one of the 20th century's most memorable product images. But beer at that time was still seen as the everyday beverage of the middle and upper middle classes in Mexico, whereas pulque was still the most commonly drank fermented beverage among the lower class. Modelo saw a market that needed to be exploited, and they set out to do that. Ten years after its launch, Corona Extra became one of Mexico's best-selling beers, thanks to a unique, aggressive, and innovative marketing strategy. In 1937, the company instigated efforts to market Corona Extra as a fine quality product to distinguish itself from the rival beverage Pulque, and they also kept the price down. See, Corona didn't have as much barley in it as, say, Modelo Especial or Negro Modelo because it was a lighter colored beer, and this campaign proved to be successful but it also caused the steady fall of Pulque's popularity with the lower classes over the course of the 20th century. Now, through the years, Corona has upped their processing and the production of beer, which, of course, includes advances in pasteurization and refrigeration, and they continued to improve its flavor. And the company's intensive marketing approach has made Corona not only the most popular beer in Mexico, but Corona is internationally recognized as the Mexican beer. In 1976, Grupo Modelo began exporting Corona to limited markets in the United States, and it quickly became so popular in the United States that black markets such as New York and Colorado they became, they wanted this beer. They couldn't get it there, and they wanted it, and it created this black market, and it thrived. Now, eventually, U.S. National District, U.S. National, I, I see I stumbled, I gotta have a drink. 
U.S. national distribution of corona went to all of the states. And I would say you'd be hard-pressed to find any decent establishment that doesn't carry Corona Extra Cerveza here or in any other developed nation around the world. Now, there's another beer, perhaps the most interesting beer in the world, Dos Equis. And it has begun to cut into the Corona market. Now, it's an older beer than Corona. Originally brewed in 1897 by Cerveceria Montezuma e Veracruz by German brewer William Haas. Now, the name Dos Equis translates to double X or two X's. And the original name of the beer was Siglo, Siglo Dos Equis Amber. And it was to commemorate the turn of the century. The two X's being the Roman numerals for 20 and Siglo, Siglo, I think that's how you say it, being the name for century. Hence, Dos Equis is the 20th century beer. Now, the Dos Equis Ambers that we drink today is the version of that traditional Vienna-style lager that they brewed then and has been available in most U.S. markets since the 1940s. Dos Lager Especial, a lighter-profile lager similar to a Pilsner, was introduced to the U.S. markets in the early 1980s in trying to horn in on the growing Corona market. But not until a very unique marketing campaign came along in 2006 does Dos Equis start to really become interesting. Now, I'll admit, I'm a Dos Equis Amber fan. I started drinking it when I could afford to buy a six-pack here and there when I lived back in Lubbock in my running days. And then it was a staple in my fridge when I lived in Dallas in the late 1980s and early 90s. But for the average person in the United States, outside of Texas maybe, I meant California, no one paid much attention to the cerveza known as Dos Equis until the most interesting man in the world advertising campaign. And that was in 2006. And by 2009, Dos Equis was the fastest growing import beer brand in the United States, and it continues to be a favorite and is consumed widely on Cinco de Mayo. Now, it's just three, Jose Cuervo, Corona, Dos Equis. I know there are others, Pacifico Sol. Of course, I mentioned Negro Modelo, and there's Bohemia and Tecate. You know what? They're all, you know, maybe another, and next year, maybe I'll talk about them. I've got to have something to talk about next year for Cinco de Mayo, don't I? So... Well, wait a minute. I haven't told you what Cinco de Mayo is the celebration of. So, if Cinco de Mayo isn't Mexican Independence Day, then you may be asking yourself, what is it a celebration of? So, here comes the history. <laughs> In 1861, Mexico was just a year from coming out of its own civil war, and Presidente Benito Juarez had a big problem. The country was broke. The newly established government had no option but to suspend payments on the interest of the debt owed 
essentially defaulting on those loans that the European powers of Spain, Britain, and France had given to Mexico to finance Juarez's liberal coalition during the Mexican Civil War. So the European powers, they got together, they formed the Tripartite Alliance with the goal of invading Mexico and forcing the Mexican government to pay off its debt immediately. Now, Spain and Britain saw what France was up to, and they withdrew their support when it became clear to them that Napoleon III of France had much bigger ambitions. His goal was to set up a puppet in the government of Mexico with the allied Austrian Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian to become his emperor, Maximilian I of Mexico, who would be answering to Napoleon III. He had great, Napoleon III had ambitions of creating a French empire in the New World, just as Napoleon Bonaparte I also did until his that little rebellion he had in Haiti caused everything to go into the shit can, and then he started losing some other stuff in Northern Africa and, and you know, on the continent, and he needed to sell this big piece of land that was a bunch of junk. Nobody wanted it called Louisiana, and that's where I'm sitting here right now. So anyway, that's another story for another time. Where, Sorry, I do get off on tangents. It just happens. So... In February of 1862, the French invasion naval fleet forced the city of Campache on the Yucatan Peninsula to surrender. And then the French army arrived just a few days later. The French set up a naval blockade of all the Mexican ports, keeping needed supplies from the defending Mexican liberal forces. And the French had Mexican allies also. See, some of the remnants of the conservative coalition, which had lost the Civil War, were anxious to regain at least some modicum of influence in the government, even if it meant sucking up to an invading foreign power. So, in March of 1862, the French army, which at the time was considered the most powerful land force in the world, began a march toward Mexico City. And along the way, they decided to set the city of Puebla under siege. On May 5th, after more than a month of unsuccessful attacks upon the city, French General Charles de la Rancaise decided to change tactics and try to attack the city from the north, a different direction from where they had been attacking. And it was a major error because all the while that the invaders had been hitting the city from the south and east, the Mexican defenders of the city under the leadership of Commander Ignacio Zaragoza, even while fighting, had been bolstering their northern defenses in anticipation of a French attack from that direction. Lorenzais didn't attack on May 5th until just before noon. And he started with an artillery barrage along the northern defenses of the city. That was mistake number one. Now, with no response from the Mexican defenders, the French general assumed that, Psh, we're going to march right in here. And he sent his infantry in, all of it, all of the infantry, he sent them in just past noon. Mistake number two. 
But the Mexicans had tricked them. They'd hunkered down during their artillery barrage. When the infantry drew close, the Mexicans opened fire with their cannons that had grape shot in it, mowing down the infantry. The French, by that time, the infantry was up too close to the wall. They couldn't open up with artillery. And by the, they, the Mexicans decimated the infantry charge. The French then, as most of their men were either dying or running from the field, they opened up again with an artillery barrage. And they soon ran out of ammunition from their can- for their cannons. Then the French sent in the reserves. And that third infantry attack had no artillery support at all. And around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it began to rain, turning the battlefield into a quagmire. Lawrence says he gave up and he called for a retreat. And with the French retreating from the field, Zaragoza sent forth his cavalry to chase the French off of the battleground. The Battle of Puebla was over. The Mexican troops, who numbered only 4,500 soldiers, but let's be honest here, they did have about 7,000 citizens inside the walls of the city helping them with the defense, all right? But the 4,500 soldiers had defeated a larger and better trained force of almost 7,000 Frenchmen who were supposed to be the best soldiers in the world. And Cinco de Mayo would forever live in history as the greatest military victory in the Historia de Mexico. And so the Mexicans finally got their independence from a foreign European power. No, no, up, oh, stop, nope. Not quite yet. Hmm. Cheers. Oh, tequila. And a little chaser. No, it didn't. That wasn't the end of the war. The French army retreated to the coast, they regrouped, they came back, and they took Pueblo on May 17th, 12 days later. It was a great almost two weeks. A year later, the French took Mexico City. Presidente Juarez, he retreated to El Paso del Norte on the Texas border, where he set up a government in exile in that city. And that city today we know as Ciudad Juarez. Uh, which, uh, besides Tijuana, is probably the best known and most traveled destination for Americans wanting to slip into Mexico to get some cheap souvenirs, along with other inexpensive things like shows with donkeys. And I won't go any further. Anyway, Emperor Maximilian, he arrives from Austria in March of 1864 with his empress, Charlotte of Belgium, and... For his uh, patron, Napoleon III, he establishes the Second Mexican Empire, who, uh, who was in charge of the First Mexican Empire, that very famous guy from our Alamo story in Texas, Santa Ana, who uh, the liberals had tossed off of, the, of his throne just a few years earlier. Anyway, another story, another time. Ah, where was I? So... Shortly after the U.S. Civil War ends in 1865, Washington, D.C. starts looking at this little war that's going on down south of the Rio Grande. And just to make sure that things go the way they want, they send U.S. Cavalry General Phil Sheridan 
along with a force of 50,000 American troops, that's infantry, cavalry, and artillery combined, to the Mexican border. And with them, they are carrying 30,000 rifled muskets from the former Confederate Baton Rouge Armory, which just happened to find their way into the hands of Juarez's Mexican Republican Army at El Paso del Norte. Now, Mexican agents were also allowed by the United States government to come into the U.S. and to sell Mexican war bonds. See, the U.S. didn't want a foreign European power that they thought, well, we might have trouble if we had to beat these guys. Now, if we have to get in a fight with Mexico, we can probably handle Mexico. But if we have to get in a fight with France... Yeah, this is another fucking story. We need to get make sure they don't get here before they're established. So that was that was the U.S.'s motivation. They invoked the Monroe Doctrine that said that they United States would not allow any European powers to come in and take over land in the Western Hemisphere. The Johnson administration in Washington began to put a lot of pressure on Paris threatening real economic sanctions, establishing a blockade of all French goods and personnel entering not only Mexican ports, but U.S. ports as well. And having an army of 50,000 troops along the border was a not-so-veiled threat by the Americans that they might enter the conflict on the side of Benito Juarez if the French didn't get out. So, in 1866, Napoleon III chose his bank account over his friend, Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian, and he chose American relations over his ideals of a Western Hemisphere empire. And he announced that all French military personnel would be withdrawn from Mexico beginning on May 31st, of 1866, leaving Emperor Maximilian swinging in the wind and to his own devices. Now, if the Austrian Archduke had been smart, which he wasn't, he was a puppet, remember? And smart people aren't puppets. He would have left Mexico as his empress, the Princess Charlotte of Belgium. She was smart. She did. But he didn't. And Emperor Maximilian was captured in May of 1867, and he was executed by Juarez's government on June 19th of that year. So, really, Cinco de Mayo is a celebration of a battle that really didn't have much of an impact on anything. Really, didn't. It was, it was a hiccup in the French march, to uh, Mexico City, but really the thing that turned the tide for the Republic of Mexico, the future Republic of Mexico, was the influence of the United States of America after they had finished their own problems in their civil war. I guess celebrating Cinco de Mayo for us would kind of be like celebrating the Battle of Lexington Concord, which 
They sort of do, and they well, not they sort of do. They do in Massachusetts and other states. They celebrate that battle on Patriots Day. That's April 19th. And there's some comparison to be made, like the Battle of Puebla, Lexington conquered, could be considered a defeat of a superior force by a much inferior opponent. And like the French at Puebla, the British pulled back, they regrouped, and then they came at Boston again later in the year. But that's kind of where the comparison ends. See, Lexington conquered was the first battle of the American Revolution, even before the Declaration of Independence came about a year and two and a half months later. Puebla, on the other hand, it was fought right in the middle of a people's defense of their own country from a foreign power, and they won that fight. The celebration of Cinco de Mayo all but died out in Mexico, except in the state of Puebla, during the 20th century. But do you know where it held on? The celebration of Cinco de Mayo, I mean. It held on with the American citizens of Mexican descent in California primarily, but also in the southwestern states of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. You see, in California, when word reached the Mexicans living there in 1862 that General Zaragoza, who, by the way, was, was born in Texas, when General Zaragoza had defeated the French, there were massive celebrations, and from that point on, the Chicanos of California carried the torch and kept alive the celebration of Cinco de Mayo. Just as the French army was thought to be the best in the world in 1862, so was the British military thought of in the same manner when they came to the shores of North America in the late 1770s. And just as the Mexicans were not supposed to defeat the French, and probably wouldn't have had it not been for the influence and intervention of the United States, well... The same could be said about the United States not being able to defeat the British had it not been for the influence and intervention of the French. So, like the 4th of July is to us, Cinco de Mayo is to the Mexican people. It represents a struggle to overcome the impossible. Now, of course, this Friday, there will be a lot of people who get seriously plastered on cheap tequila, margaritas, while eating ground beef with shredded lettuce and tomato out of a fried tortilla bowl. That's not fucking Mexican food. God damn it. And they'll think that they are somehow paying homage to the Mexican people. And, you know, the, the sad thing is, is many Americans don't distinguish between a Mexican, a Cuban, a Guatemalan, a Dominican, a Puerto Rican. They're all just kind of lumped together in some, under some derogatory, categorical, racist group name. Which is sad. It really is. Unless you're an Osage Indian, or any type of Native American, you came from somewhere else. You're family was an immigrant. Now, some of you might have been forced immigrants. I'm speaking of African Americans. But you're still an immigrant. We're immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants. And the contributions of the Mexican people 
to the history of the United States cannot be understated. Most of the time, this podcast is very lighthearted, and, but there's something that really saddens me right now in our history. And as a student of history, it, here's what saddens me, is the demonization of people who are not Americans. Our neighbors to the South, the Mexicans, have contributed much to the history of the United States, as we have contributed to theirs. We were once friends. We have been friends since 1867. And our neighbors to the North in that same year, 1867, Canada received dominion status in the United Kingdom, in, the, in, the, in Great Britain. And we have had friendly relations with them as well. But now, there are some who are very short-sighted, who are calling an America First campaign and to hell with everybody else. And the truth of the matter is, we live in a global community. These people are our neighbors, and we need to maintain good relations with them. This Friday at Patty Malone's, we'll give a nod at the pub for Cinco de Mayo. We'll have some some specials on cerveza, and we'll have some good tequila. We'll bring in a couple of bottles. But, and Tommy will probably whip up something that's probably closer to uh, Mexican food than most of the stuff that you get at the restaurants around here for a special. But what I'll be remembering on this Friday is my friend Jorge George Castro. George and I lost track of each other a long time ago. Too many moves, too many phone numbers lost. I tried to find him on the internet a few years back, but I had no luck. There are a lot of George and Jorge Castros living in Texas. I'll always be thankful to George and his father and mother, Senor and Senora Castro, who were kind enough to have a gringo who was a long way from home come into their home with the words, Mi casa es su casa. I don't know where they are. I don't know if they're alive. I hope if they are alive, that they're all doing very well. I have gone a long way in my life because of the kindness of strangers. And I hope that I have, along that road, been the stranger who has also given out kindness. So Friday, I'll raise a glass to my Mexican friends and their hospitality on a Cinco de Mayo some 35 years ago. History Episode 24 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. History, the story of alcohol, is a wild Irish production, all rights reserved, and it was recorded at River's Edge Studio and Patty Malone's Irish Pub in Jefferson City, Missouri. To learn more about our local pub, find us on Facebook at Patty Malone's Irish Pub. This week's phrase for you podcast listeners and patrons at the pub is Viva Mexico. That's it, Viva Mexico. 
Tell your server or bartender that phrase and get a special offer on any 20-ounce draft of Cerveza on tap. That's this Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And oh, what the hell. Let's add Friday to that as well since it's going to be Cinco de Mayo. Yay! May 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th between 3 and 9 p.m. Viva Mexico! Please, only one special per person per day, and this offer is not valid to anyone under the age of 21. And stupid shit my drunk ass said last week. <laughs> uh, oh, there was a lot. I, I, I apologize, and please forgive me for uh, the life recording. I know everybody said, oh, that was so much fun. Yeah, yeah, but when I went back and listened to it, I'm embarrassed. But anyway, that's the way it goes. Hey, there is some great news. We've got new Patreon patrons this week. Yes! Welcome to the History Family. That's Jennifer Heinz and my friend William Dent. And we're into the month of May, and as you know, I do this every month on the first podcast of the month. I want to recognize and thank all of our Patreon patrons personally. That's Tim and Tara McVeigh, Tim Emmel, Frank Burkhead, Tony Rehagen, David Fisher, Zach Paul, Ethan Cordray, Tom and Lindsay Reichardt, Justin and Kayla Bosca, George and Anna Carr, Terrence Duffy, and now Jennifer Heinz and Bill Dent. Thank you. Uh, thank you guys so much for helping us to make this happen. And if you're not a Patreon patron and you'd like to become a supporting patron, it's really easy and it costs less than one draft beer a month. Just go to the website in the upper right-hand corner of the page Click on support, and there you'll find out how to become a monthly contributor to the program. You'll be helping us to offset web hosting and podcast platform fees, as well as underwriting our expenses related to recording, editing software, time spent researching, writing, recording, editing, drinking. <laughs> Thanks again, and to all of you, and any and all support is always greatly appreciated. Now, a reminder, I told you to stay tuned and listen to this. We're less than three weeks. It'll be Sunday, May 21st, and the Mothers, Brothers, and Sisters Baseball and Beer Road Trip. And we've got a few spots left, but a very few. It's only $59 per person, and that includes coach transportation to Springfield from Patty Malone's and back, beverages on the coach, a tour of Mothers Brewing Company in Springfield, pizza lunch courtesy of our good friends over at Bechtel Beverage, dugout box seats at Hammonds Field to see the Springfield Cardinals take on the Texas League rivals Northwest Arkansas and sandwiches, chips, and a beverage on the ride back home to JCMO. If you'd like more information on how you can join us, send me an email at cheers at history.com. And for your Patreon patrons, hell, take 10% off, which is five dollars and ninety cents no take 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 off off make it fifty three dollars buy a ticket and tickets are going fast now and we're down to just a few so if you want to get on don't wait too long get in touch with me send me an email cheers at history.com and if you've got my phone number send me a text thanks to everyone who shared the post on facebook and twitter if you haven't yet started please please follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash history and on Twitter at sign, that's the thing that looks like a snail, history. 
Please like and share the post about the episodes when they come out each week. That's the best way we can get the word out to the people. And if you've got a friend out there that's a history nerd like me, that likes to have a drink of alcohol like me, or maybe they're just a podcast listener, tell them about history. It's greatly appreciated. And thanks, thanks to all of you for spreading the gospel of history. If you're a fan of the show and you're so moved, please, a glowing review on iTunes is greatly appreciated. And likes on SoundCloud and Stitcher are also great. Any questions or show ideas, send me an email at cheerstohistory.com or you can send me a message through Facebook. You can find more information about the podcast on our website. And I've got a little bit of a blog over there. I don't keep it up very often, but that's okay. I want you to come here and get the as well as links to all of our feeds on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Yeah, you already know that. Now, the theme music for history is provided by Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then please contact www.bensound.com and see what solutions they have for you. That's bensound.com. And again, to all of you for listening, thank you so much. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. Have a great week. Be safe. Drink responsibly. Don't drink and drive. So until next week, if I don't see you at the pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And of course, Marilee, I love you, honey. Thank you for everything you do for us, especially for me. As always, you are the measure of my dreams. And so to take you out today, a great song from my memories of Lubbock, Texas. This is the Mains Brothers from 1981, their great song, Amarillo Highway. Enjoy. Goodbye, everybody. And a fresh deck in New Deal. Yeah, some call me high hand, some call me low hand, but I'm holding what I am. Southern Pride.